0: Hello, this is episode 22 of the Cognitive Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Blessing, a professor of cognitive psychology at the University of Tampa. I use games to both explain and explore how we think. I hope you all had a relaxing end to 2018 and a good start to 2019. I'm looking forward to another year of Cognitive Gamer Podcasts in which we look at the intersection of psychology and playing games. In this episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into something I touched upon back in episode 11, where I laid out a general roadmap about how human memory and knowledge works. Don't worry if you haven't listened to that one. I'll give us enough background on that particular topic to get started. The big idea behind episode 11 was to provide a brief description of how cognitive psychologists divide up human knowledge and memory into its different types. Most people are aware of shorter-term memories versus longer-term memories, but cognitive psychologists make finer distinctions than that. In episode 11, I talked about declarative memories versus non-declarative memories, and it's that distinction that I would like to talk about more here, particularly how knowledge transitions from one of these types to another. Declarative memories are pretty straightforward because the name kind of gives away what they are all about. This is knowledge that you can easily talk about or declare. The last game night you had the rules of your favorite game, playing Dungeons & Dragons in your parents' basement as a preteen, these are all declarative memories. This knowledge is acquired through our senses, through what we see, hear, taste, smell, and feel. For some of these memories, we can close our eyes and play them back, such as that last game night that you had. These types of declarative memories are referred to as episodic because they are episodes of our life, having particular time and place associated with them. Other declarative memories that we can easily talk about, like the rules to a favorite game, don't have that time and place information associated with them, and so are often referred to as semantic. That is, you know them, but you don't remember learning them. Your knowledge of basic arithmetic facts are also like that, like what's 2 plus 2. You all know that, learned it some time ago, can easily recite it, but probably have no idea when or where you learned it. I'm not going to dwell too much on this episodic versus semantic distinction in this podcast, and indeed, cognitive psychologists were spar on whether these are truly qualitatively different types of declarative memories or if they just vary as to degree. But for our purposes now, that argument can be had on another later podcast. I referred to the other main type of knowledge that we have as non-declarative. that sounds mostly like it's being used as a catch-all for anything that's not a declarative memory, you're right. Cognitive psychologists definitely disagree as to how to divide memory in general, but this particular division is a challenging one. Non-declarative is the label that's used in many intro-to-psychology textbooks. I'm going to be very specific in what I mean by it, and I will call it procedural memory. With this distinction, when I talk about memory in class, I often refer to declarative memory, what we talked about previously, as your knowledge of what things are, and then this other type of memory, procedural knowledge, as your knowledge of how to do things. Procedural knowledge then covers your ability to navigate an environment in a first- or third-person shooter, using either a mouse or keyboard or a controller, how to give an awesome clue in code names, and how to rearrange your Scrabble tiles into the best word. Sure, you can talk about all that and teach it to someone verbally, that is declaratively, but it's probably more you doing the action and then reporting back what you observe yourself doing. The origin isn't a declarative knowledge store, but rather procedural, particularly if these are skills that you have done for a while. Your ability to talk about about it is all post hoc. You probably observe that when you try to talk about procedural knowledge, you find it either very hard to do or it slows you down, or perhaps both. When you do this, it truly does have this aspect of you observing yourself and then describing those actions that you've already done or are about to do. In episode 11, I talked about some of the experimental evidence for these two types of memory. I discussed the neurological findings from amnesic patients, those with damaged brains, that can learn one type of memory but not the other. What I would like to do today is talk more about this transition from declarative memory to procedural memory. This discussion is informed very much by a particular theory of cognition, John Anderson's ACT theory of cognition. He was my Ph.D. thesis advisor at Carnegie Mellon, so while there may be a little bit of self-interest here, John truly is one of the greats in cognitive science, and his ACT theory, one of the most well-respected and well-rounded unified theories of cognition out there. I encourage you to take a look and not just take my word for it. I'll put a link or two in the show notes to get you started. One strong claim of the ACT theory is that all memories start at in the declarative store and transition to procedural with practice. Indeed, that was the particular issue I examined in my doctoral dissertation, really hitting that process as it existed in an earlier version of the theory. You may be interested to know that the ACT theory is fully substantiated enough that there is a computer version of it that has gone through several iterations. They are now at version 7, It was at version 4 when I did my PhD work 20 or so years ago. That means that you can create a computer model of these cognitive processes, not only for memory, but also lower-level processes, like perception, and higher-level processes, like problem-solving and decision-making. For those truly interested, anyone can download the software from the ACT website, along with a tutorial. From these computer models, you can either model past human data or create predictions for future experiments done with humans. If the model can predict performance, that gives you confidence that the model has validity. What goes on in both declarative and procedural memories is something that has been modeled extensively within the ACT theory and software. As an aside, the ACT theory is referred to as a symbolic architecture, contrasted with the sub symbolic architecture of neural networks that get a lot of attention in the press and science fiction novels. The sub symbolic architecture of neural networks attempts To mimic more closely how the human brain works, as we can see how real-world examples like Alexa and AlphaGo have made great strides. Symbolic architectures like the ACT theory abstract over the minute details that happen in neural networks and use as their primitives objects and symbols that have more meaning. I'll talk about these next. I told you previously that declarative memories all start out by what comes through our five senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, and smelling. That makes sense, pun intended, because that's how we experience the world, and we can talk about those experiences. These memories are obviously quite useful, and they are very flexible. They can be used in a variety of instances. Your knowledge of math facts can be used in a whole host of types of games, from tabulating victory points to scores to hit points to wherever you have to add, subtract, multiply, or divide. Also, you can talk about something like the last game you played and whether you liked it or not to your best friend while talking on the phone, in a review you're writing, or while you're at the game store. This flexibility, though, comes at a bit of a cost in terms of speed to access and use. Sure, you can practice those types of memories and they will be accessed and used more quickly, but never as efficiently as what a procedural memory can be. Procedural memories are specialized for the way in which the knowledge is used. I won't get too technical here, but in the ACT architecture, declarative knowledge is represented as chunks. That's the actual term of related information. Again, that's a very flexible representation. Procedural knowledge is represented as productions. These are condition-action pairs, or if you're a programmer, a slightly more complicated if-then statement. They essentially take the form of a condition, that is, if this is true about the situation, then take this action, and the action would change the current situation to something else. And to be clear, your declarative knowledge is part of the situation as well. To do any interesting action, like even playing a simple game such as tic-tac-toe, requires a whole sequence of productions to work together. One of them might be, if I am playing tic-tac-toe, and it's my turn, and no square has been chosen, then put an X in the center square. A set of productions that accomplishes some task is simply called a production set. In a previous job, I used to work on software called Cognitive Tutors that a student would use to learn a new subject, like Algebra 1. The tutors were effective because they based their instruction on a cognitive model of the skill, realized as a production set. The production set for Algebra 1 had a few thousand productions in it. The advantage of a production is its efficiency. It will execute quickly. It's quick, though, because it will only change the state of the current situation— to fire is the technical term, if the condition matches the current situation. If anything is off, it probably won't fire. I can imagine writing an act modded to play games like Catan or Scythe or Terraforming Mars, and it might be on the order of several hundred production rules. Let's quickly discuss how new procedural memories are formed. Again, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but there are two different ways. Totally new procedural memories can be formed by analogizing two declarative memories together. If there are two things that are similar out there in the world, it may make sense to convert them into more efficient memories. Codenames into crypto have certain similarities, but also differences, as I discussed in episode 19. As you notice these similarities and differences, you may create procedural knowledge to assist you in your play, something like... If playing a word game and I need to give a clue and these two words are related in this way, then give a clue based on that relation. Again, that's very high level and would probably need to actually be substantiated in dozens of actual productions. This is essentially what I did in my dissertation, looking at this process of creating productions based on analogy, not in a game context, but in learning something like algebra. The other way new productions can come about is through a process called compilation. If two productions always or often occur together, then instead of chaining the first production with the second to speed things up even more, you can essentially compile these two together by creating a, a new third production by combining the conditions of the first production with the action of the second production. If that turns out to be truly useful, then this third production will gain strength and will be used more than the two productions separately. This process of creating new declarative knowledge by... Interacting with the world and then proceduralizing it as we gain experience within the domain accounts for how we acquire any cognitive skill, including games, as well as academic knowledge, sports, learning a musical instrument, and anything else. Indeed, sometimes as we transition from using declarative knowledge to performing an action to where it's mostly procedural, that declarative knowledge will fade away due to lack of use. Here's a quick example. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Answer as quickly as you can. Where is the letter E at on the typewriter keyboard? Okay, how many of you noticed that you moved the middle finger of your left hand to help you answer? Probably a clear majority, as it is in most of my classes. Knowledge of typing starts out declaratively, but quickly becomes proceduralized such that to answer that question, you need to do the action in order to answer it. The same thing would happen if I asked PS4 users which direction the triangle is or Xbox players which direction the X button is. I saw that thumb move. This process has been brought clearly to my mind the last couple of weeks. I finally started playing Marvel's Spider-Man for PS4. I'm several hours in at this point, having just completed the first act. I'm loving it, by the way. But I was a mess at the beginning. To get swinging, you need to hit X to jump... Then press R2 and keep holding to shoot out a web. And when you're close to the top of your swing, release R2 and press it again. You can also press X or do both R2 and L2 together to help you get from point to point. And that's just swinging. Fighting is a whole other story. There's all these different combos of the buttons to get you leaping, hitting, slinging, and dodging in different directions. At first, I thought this was never going to come together. For swinging and fighting, I had to think very deliberately about what needed to be done, what buttons to press. I was slow. I was using declarative knowledge. But that declarative knowledge became proceduralized as I went along. I should be very explicit here. This transition from declarative to procedural knowledge is not a conscious process on your part. It just happens as you practice. Your mental machinery does all the work without you being aware that it's happening. As my cognitive processes did their thing, I became not only better but also faster. When fighting Fisk's men in the demon gang, I have become much more efficient in my moves and don't have to think about the buttons to press nearly as much until I unlock a new gadget or fighting capability to add to my repertoire, which begins the declarative to procedural process again. To give you a pointer to another example of this process, the guys over at The Secret Cabal of Gaming recently released one of their Express episodes that directly relates to this idea. In Express episode 44 from January 4th of this year, Bender, Aaron, and Jamie discuss painting miniatures to be used in tabletop and RPG games. Their whole conversation is about the declarative knowledge you need to assemble, prime, paint, and finish the miniatures. They talk about the tools and tips they have used during the many months and years they have devoted to this hobby. That's all declarative memory. But as they talk, you also get a good sense of how some amount of these memories and knowledge have been proceduralized and they've gotten more experience. I encourage you to listen to that episode, not only to learn a little bit about painting miniatures, but also to appreciate this transition from declarative to procedural knowledge that you can probably now pick up on as they discuss this domain. One thing that follows from this is what you've probably heard of as the learning curve. Simply put, you get better at a task the more you do it. That's evident in both my Spider-Man example and The Secret Cabal of Gaming talking about miniature painting. In cognitive psychology, we refer to it more fully as the power law of learning, though some argue it's really more exponential. Regardless... Because learning almost any skill follows one of these functions, an actual mathematical formula with very regular features can be used to plot it. Again, I'll put a reference in the show notes if you want more details, but in general, these curves, if you're plotting something like number of attempts on the x-axis and time to play a game, or perform an action on the y-axis, or perhaps you plot errors on the y-axis, you can see a steep drop-off early in the curve, but that with more experience, there's less increase in learning or fewer errors, but there's still some improvement. The curve does asymptote, but that's the point of asymptotes. They only get there at infinity. There's a classic study done by Crossman in 1959 that shows that cigar rollers, even after seven years of experience, which is on the order of about 10 million cigars rolled, according to the article, still show signs of improvement. There are still efficiencies of knowledge and skill to be had after that long telepractice. My wife is now shuddering of what would happen if I practiced traversing New York City in Spider-Man for seven years. I'll give both a board game example and a video game example of this as well. In board games, think about your favorite medium or heavier weight game, something like Scythe or Terra Mystica. Think about the first time you and your board game group played it and how long it took. A couple of episodes ago, my wife and I discussed when we played Scythe for the first time. Even after having played My Little Scythe and watched Rodney Smith teach it, it still took three hours to get through the game. But we had a lot of declarative knowledge to sort through, learn, and figure out, and little to no procedural knowledge. I'm confident the second time we play it, it will take much less time, and the third time, even a little less. We'd be working our way down the power law of learning. To give a video game example... Think about people who do speed runs in these games. These are people who devote countless hours honing how best to finish a game in the shortest amount of time. I'm sure their practice and performance, in large part, has been governed by the power law of learning. Their first time through, it took an average amount of time for them to complete their game. But then they kept doing it, with subsequent attempts taking less and less, with all that knowledge reorganizing itself to where it is after hundreds of hours playing the games, mostly, if not almost entirely, in a proceduralized state. Some of them probably are at the practical limits of how fast you can get through the game. The 2019 Games Done Quick benefit has just concluded, with several of the best speedrunners using their talents to benefit charity. I encourage you to take a look at the Games Done Quick website or search for the videos on YouTube to look at these people who are low, low down on the learning curve. Let's let that bring us to a close on the transition from declarative to procedural knowledge and memory. I encourage you to think about this information as, as you learn a new task. Maybe the next time you start to learn a new game, think about all the declarative knowledge you are picking up, maybe how it seems a little bit overwhelming, but then over time, how your performance at the task gets better and better as that knowledge becomes better rehearsed and proceduralized. There are still some things to talk about in this area, such as getting about more into the pros and cons of having expert knowledge encoded in terms of procedures. Obviously, you get expert performance that way, but you also get some interesting downsides like functional fixedness and something called Einstellung. But those are topics we'll examine more closely later. As always, I welcome any comments or questions you may have, so please email me, steve at cognitivegamer.com, and also visit my website, cognitivegamer.com. Also, you can like me on Facebook, Cognitive Gamer, or follow me on Twitter, at cognitive underscore gamer. I'd appreciate it if you took time to give this podcast a rating and a few kind remarks on iTunes or wherever you listen to Cognitive Gamer. This will make it easier for other people to discover the podcast. I appreciate those five-star reviews. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.